Hi, everyone, and welcome to Academic Dean, where we connect with passionate college leaders who share their stories and viewpoints of higher education, especially lessons learned along the way. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dave Gurchak. Hi, everyone. Today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Kelly Bean to our show. Dr. Bean is the provost at the University of Rio Grande and Rio Grande Community College in Rio Grande, Ohio. Hi, Kelly. I'm excited to have you on our podcast today. Hi. Thanks so much for inviting me. So can you tell me about the University of Rio Grande and Rio Grande Community College and why students select your institution? Well, Rio Grande is a unique institution. I know we all say that, and and it's nice that we all believe it. Um, But what I mean by that is the way it was organized. Um, And when Governor Rhodes of the state of Ohio had an idea about higher education, and he had this um, business model in mind with uh, having community colleges and universities, while they're distinct sort of entities, they operate as one sort of behind the scenes in a kind of a his, a unique business model. And the idea was that they were both on the same campus in a way that's not not separated. You don't have like at Marshall University a long time ago, there was the, Mar- the community college that was completely separate. And then it was happened to just be located on the same campus. This is one campus. You don't have a community college campus, community college buildings and university buildings. It's all one. And when students get there, the, the transition from a community college um, curriculum into the university curriculum is invisible. Uh, what they do notice, of course, is when you go from community college to university, the fees go up. Um, but once once you roll out of community associate's degree into bachelor's degree, you can earn a bachelor's degree and then you roll right into your or you can earn an associate's degree and then you roll right into your bachelor's degree on the same campus with the same faculty. So it's a really intriguing model. Um, I'm, I have not read enough of the history to know why we are the last one standing. Um, But we are, and it makes sense to me that in rural Ohio, rural Appalachian, Ohio, a model like this would have survived because we really need in places like Appalachia um, on ramps into higher education. And this model seems to acknowledge that some students who are underprepared might not want to come to a university campus, but they might go to a community college. And if it's all in one place, then you really can demystify the four-year degree by helping them with their first two-year degree. It also gives them a bunch of options, right? We offer certificates, associates, bachelors. So students can come in, they can dip in and dip out at a school that's located in their the heart of their community. So the community college only deals with the two-year degrees though, correct? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So certificates right. workforce. So just, to, so just to let you know, this is really intriguing because in Montana, for an example, probably around 94, or 94, the Votex in the state got attached to the regional or the flagships. And yeah. so so in Billings, for example, the, the Votech turned into basically College of Technologies, which is now City College, which is about six miles away from Montana State University Billings. However, in Bozeman, where you have Montana State University, they actually have exactly what you have. Their two-year college, which is called Gallatin, is in the center of their university. And the thing that we notice that students like is exactly what you said, is when they come to the, to the two-year component, sometimes the classes are a little bit smaller. 
Um, and of course the tuition's a little bit different. And so it was their way of stepping in and we thought it was a great idea. You're the first, first provost I've talked to that somebody else is doing that. So I think that's just yeah. wonderful. And I think it, I agree. I think students really, really enjoy that, that break. Because then when they're ready to make that jump, they're, they're already familiar with the campus. And sometimes they don't want to make the jump and that's right. fine too. And what I really like also in terms of like being the chief academic officer is how we, we have the, the exact same faculty serve all, all of all of our instruction. All of our instructional staff is the same. So students don't move from one sort of set of individuals in the classroom to another set. They're already familiar. Right. Um, and then And then that means also that we are a devotedly teaching institution. And so we have a really strong teaching faculty right. and we attract those kinds of faculty um, and we reward teaching. And that's one of the things I think also an area like ours really needs to emphasize or any institution in um, impoverished areas or um, high need communities should emphasize. Yeah, well, great. Well, what's new at your institution? Well, I was trying to think of how to keep this list short. <laughs> it's um, okay. The <laughs> The, the biggest news is that we we got a new president um, a few years ago, and um, we were like so many other small schools, because of course, we're, we're our headcount is just under 2,000. So we're a small school. And before I got there, I've been here about a year, um, they had really been going through some difficult times. And before the, the new president, um, Ryan Smith, arrived... And there were times when it wasn't, people were not sure that Rio Grande was going to make it. And then the board wisely brought in Ryan, or I should call him President Smith, and the ship is really turning. And one of the, I think the team, and again, this happened before I got here, one of the team's genius moves was to reduce university tuition by 27%. One of the things that they observed was, was persistence from community college to university that seemed to be too big a jump um, financially, too big a jump expense-wise. And also in terms of the community that we seek and the audience we're looking for, the price tag just didn't, didn't look right, right? When you looked at the ads, it seemed like we were overpriced. But we were also in significant financial difficulties. So this team actually went student by student, bill by bill, and understood what they could tolerate in turn what the institution could tolerate in terms of a discount rate and then what kind of volume in student um, recruitment we would need to be okay and they did it these people are amazing um, and we reduced oh, wow. university tuition by 27 percent and now between 2019 and today our enrollment has grown by 19 percent wow total the first last year as a result of that, that this is what we're um, attributing it to, the university grew by 38%. But across those three years from 2019, including both institutions. So we're kind of a unicorn right now um, in the sector. Yeah. That's the biggest news. That That's that's very impressive. First of all, almost every, every uh, uh, president or chancellor I've talked to, when people get in trouble, they just try to cut them themselves out of the problem instead of right. looking at looking at tuition difference. So that's that's really an exciting idea. And the team also we um, have a really um, great uh, CFO, two CFOs, one in the community college, one at the university. 
And they really used our HERF dollars, um, the stimulus during the during COVID very strategically. So it was really nice when you read in the news about how some institutions had to use those for operations. We made investments in, and paid down debt. So um, we are really, I think, in a, in a position to thrive and kind of set, set the curve um, in Southeastern Ohio and then perhaps more broadly. Prior to President Smith arriving, there was some, there was some retrenchment okay. and there was some cutting. Um, but not to the degree that you see in other schools. And we have been able to invite some of the retrenched faculty back um, because with the growing enrollment, we need faculty. We need chairs of departments. We need coordinators of programs. So um, it's been nice to see that we can, we can bring some people back. But no, there was some significant pain <laughs> before 2019. Um, I don't want to say that there wasn't, but with us now that we're in this position, we, our strategy is really kind of, as the president says, we're going to hit every fastball that comes down the middle, every opportunity we're going to, we're going to leap on it. And so we're deeply involved in the Intel project here in Ohio, as your listeners in Ohio will know what I'm talking about. They're um, recruiting a lot of institutions of higher education to design, uh, curriculum or tweak curriculum because we need, they need workers. They need, they're going to need about 12,000. They're going to have multiple jobs um, over the, you know, the next foreseeable future. But right now as they're building where they're probably going to require about 7,000 construction jobs and about 3000 employees to Intel in the next three years. And all those folks have to be number one recruited and then trained in a particular way. And so um, community colleges have formed a kind of consortium across the uh, state to design curriculum, shared curriculum, to prepare students to work for Intel. And Intel is, you know, that would be a lovely um, result of a community college education down in Southeastern Ohio. Sure. Um, they, that, would, that would change people's lives. Um, other things we've been able to launch programs, we launched an agricultural program um, we're launching a master's in science and nursing program. We're working on um, a STEM school. Uh, and then also we have established a student success center for the first time. And that is something that a community college population really benefits from. And so both on the academic, financial and the student affairs side, so I shouldn't say both, on all three fronts, um, we're really growing and moving forward. It's very, mm -hmm. I'm, as you can tell, I'm really excited about yeah. what's happening. Yeah, good for you guys. Well, let's yeah. talk about you. So can you talk about yourself and the path that led you to become the provost? Sure. Um, I graduated from Ohio State, Bill Bucks, and then I went um, to get my PhD at the University of Delaware. And my first tenure track job uh, was a uh, in the English department at Marshall University, which is in Huntington, West Virginia. And it's right on the Ohio, it resides right on the Ohio River. So you can see Ohio from the other side. So I'm kind of, I come back home. Um, and I was a teacher there for about 15 years, a professor. And then I went into ad, uh, administration there. I became the associate dean of the College of Liberal Arts. But as an instructor, I fell in love with Appalachia uh, the needs of Appalachian students um, and the difference higher education can make to communities in these kinds of regions. 
So from then on, I've just moved from region to region that looks a lot like Appalachia. So I went from um, Marshall University to a rural, very small school in the northeast corner of Vermont. And it was also about a 2000 head headcount school, rural poverty, um, lots of strong connections between K-12 and the, and the college like we have here at Rio. Um, and you could really see there how sending educated students back with kind of an um, the opportunity to grow businesses, start businesses, or find a living wage really transformed even, you know, towns, families. It was fantastic. So really seeing that, um, those benefits that are tangible, right? In the, in small schools like that, you, you see your students again, they don't, they don't disappear to some other state, they, they stay home. And then I went to Hartwick College, which is in the foothills of the Catskills, more rural education, um, very small school, um, again, about 2000 headcount. Uh, and I was the associate vice president for academic affairs there and a very similar kind of experience. And I grew up, as I said, in Columbus, Ohio. So I was happy to be able to get closer to Columbus and stay in um, rural education. And that's what brought me down to Rio Grande. Gotcha. Well, what's been your proudest moment so far as provost? Um, you know, it's easier to, it's easiest to, or it's more intuitive, I guess, to think about proud moments of, with students. You know, when you see your students blossom or you see them get it, or they're in, they're, they're taking your class, one of your classes for the fourth time and you see them really grow intellectually or, um, as a provost, uh, so much of your work is systemic, right? It's institution-wide. But I do have to say that what makes me proudest in my work is affecting other individuals. So recently I was able to promote um, a very fine woman on our campus who was a director and chair of a department who recently got her PhD. She's She's really smart, really articulate. Um, it's kind of underutilized, but there was nowhere for her to go yet. And I had the opportunity to promote her to Dean and her name is Dr. Stephanie Wells Mullins and watching her in the first month, find her place and thrive and be able to already make a difference to the institution. That, that makes me really proud. Like, and seeing that she feels valued, that that, that promotion, mattered to her. And now it's benefiting the people around her and the institution. Those kinds of things make me really proud. Um, do you miss teaching? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can, t I mean, I can just tell just because that's where I came from too. And no matter what, I agree, standing in that classroom and watching those students see that little light go off is just amazing. And when you move into any academic leadership role, it's just, you just kind of miss that. So, so I, and so which is good for faculty the, that they have a provost like that. So I agree. I, I think that, and now that you say that, that might be another um, thing I'm proud of. I I'm quite deliberately in on faculty side. And I try to speak that in my role as provost. And when I'm in a room with faculty, because no one understands faculty weirdness, unless you're faculty, right? They're just, we're all unicorns. We're, if you're not us, just, it's okay. Just I'll explain it to you. But um, 
yeah, I really like being in a room with faculty. I really like faculty meetings where it's just me and them. Um, and I'm proud that at, at Ryo, I have a boss who trusts me enough that he's allowing me to create, kind of redesign the academic affairs division in a way that is really shining a much brighter light on faculty than had been in you know the recent past. Yeah. Uh, but the problem with not having taught at a school where you're an administrator is that I, I do not know the students here. Right. I just, I mean, I, I, I know the category. I know how to, you know, help rural Appalachian underserved, but I don't have that. When I see them, they don't recognize me. I'm, you know, I'm and that I, I miss standing in front of students and talking about ideas. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's been some of the biggest lessons you've learned as an academic leader? Um, one of the things I've learned is neutral body language mm. that when you're in a room and you have a title like vice president or provost and any kind of conversation, but, it's, but particularly any, any, a conversation that might push a button or might be vexed or, um, emotional, they look to you, like they look to the president. They also look to the VPs. And I learned very early on in those kinds of meetings how to achieve <laughs> neutral body language. Um, because as you know, as faculty, we PhD trained people, we read everything and we read expressions, we read body language, we read every word anyone says that comes out of their mouth. So I try to just make sure that what I model is everything is fine. We're thinking about it nothing to see here. <laughs> and I think that that is really um, helpful. And it's helpful to me. Um, the best advice I got was do not let your level of emotion match theirs. So if, if someone approaches me with a problem, a faculty member is super adrenalized over something, I don't, you know, neutral body language, let your shoulders drop, have a conversation, and then take a walk. I also have learned that if you are instantly, if I am instantly inclined to do a thing, that's the thing I probably shouldn't do. The first thing you think to do is likely not the right one, because the first thing you might want to do is slam the door, or stomp off, or, you know, tell someone what's up. So those, and those are probably just leadership qualities. Um, but those, in terms of being a chief academic officer, I think one of the things I really had to learn was to, to listen, to just hear what students and faculty were saying so and that's I, hard when, when you're used to being the teacher hmm? yeah well, and i and i agree it, it really is it is different it's it's funny to watch faculty because faculty are always looking at deans or provosts or chancellors or presidents like you you have information and i'm trying to figure out what you know so they are paying a lot of attention to just not your words but how you're saying it and your body language but mm -hmm. but you're the first one who talked about Paying attention to the to the body language out of probably fifty some uh, academic <laughs> leaders I've talked to, so I think that's an excellent point. Um, what do you think are the probably the three major qualities uh, that a new provost should try to learn in that first or second year as provost? So I'll tell you, I'll tell you one that I did not have, and that was 
was a hard lesson that I was mentored to death over this. And the person who mentored me over it was exactly right. Leave your office. I, I am an intellectual, I'm an academic. I have work to do. I need to read about it. I need to study it. I need to, you know, pour over it. That's not, you are also a public figure on the campus. If you're in a small community, you're kind of a public figure in the small community. Um, if you don't show up, Folks will just invent stuff about you, not not maliciously, but they'll make assumptions. So it's important. I had to learn, and I still have to be reminded to leave my office, and and that it's okay to not always be pouring over documents and and you know doing that that scholar thing, that things that we're trained to do. That it's okay to go eat in the residence or in the. Um, the cafeteria, it's okay to take an extra 15 minutes to take a walk and say hello to people. It's okay to have coffee with your colleagues. I, I have to be dragged kicking and screaming out of my office. <laughs> and then, I mean, when there's an off, when there's an offsite meeting and I know it's going to cost me two hours, man, I just have to, whew, because I just feel like I'm supposed to be at work. I'm supposed to be working, but being visible and talking to stakeholders in the community is working. And if you're a new administrator, it takes a long time to remember that. That's an excellent. But you asked point. me for three examples, right? Well, well, just three. You know, like three qualities somebody should try to 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 bring to the table or learn. But I, you know, I don't want to set you up. I was just trying to give you um, see if you had any ideas of of what you would share no, I with think that's, new provost. That's that's it, and also. Um, if you come from from faculty, as you probably do, if you're a CAO, rem just remember what it's like to be faculty. Just try not to take in the faculty buzz, grapevine, right? Like faculty process things by talking it through, by turning it around, by assuming the worst, and then sort of gradually getting to some other idea about whatever they're talking about, right? I mean, that's what we do. We just we think about things to death, and if it's you, they're thinking about. Remember, they're thinking about the office, not, they're not thinking about Kelly. They're thinking about the provost as an idea or an institution sort of thing. And it takes a while to remember that's what faculty, because I remember as faculty, just talking about deans, not like they were human beings, right? right? Yeah. And having this anxiety about what they were doing and then meeting them at a, at, you know, like a reception at the president's house and thinking, oh, they like cheese too, right? <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> So, the, so really remove, <laughs> removing the personal from your interaction and letting, if they have to feel something, just let them feel it. Because you've taken on a job that nobody wants. Um, it's hard to be a provost. Provosts are often the first people fired when things go wrong. Um, and you're going to be kind of alone. You're not going to, you can't, you're not going to be friends with people on faculty or on campus. You're going to have to go find friends somewhere else yeah. because the role is not, is not that. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. I uh, I had a dear friend that got promoted or provost, and I could just see the weight of the world just fell on his shoulders just like that. So, yeah, yeah, it's a it's an odd it's an odd place to reside on any campus, whether it's a giant R one or a small little rural school. There's it's always this. Nobody knows what a provost does, and sometimes it's not obvious why we need you. <laughs> you know. And yet it's just one of the hardest jobs on campus. Yeah. Well, what do you think are the major challenges that colleges and universities will face over the next five to 10 years? Well, one of the things I really think 
we want to get a grip on as as sort of a genre, right? As as a as um, an industry, is how we're going to respond to <clears throat> the need for economic development and workforce de workforce development, and to generate people who can be like employees and workers. I worry about too much of that driving higher education because I don't think that we should become factories that produce workers that the large corporations tell us they need. Like I don't wanna produce widget workers for Intel. I wanna produce well-rounded human beings who can think, take care of themselves, find, you know, find curiosity throughout the rest of their life and things like that. Um, but we do still need to understand, like how do we balance how we need to understand that folks need jobs, um, the economy needs workers, and we also need a civil society. Um, democracy will die without education. Um, we need to learn to be more humane, diversity and equity and inclusion. I think those are not things that can be achieved without exposure to ideas and um, some kind of vicarious experience or literal experience with other cultures. Those are things you learn in the humanities, liberal arts. Um, so I think as we move further and further toward this workforce development model, which we're all, I mean, that's, we've started talking about that 10 years ago and thought we were cutting edge. Now everybody talks about it because it really is sort of one of the planks of higher ed now. How do we layer that with continuing our mission of contributing to a civil society? Um, in terms of like just the business model, I think we obviously have to get a handle on cost. And I don't know where, where we go from here, but certainly, um, in the smaller schools, like the ones I live in or work in, um, you have a little, you have more opportunity to be creative because you have a smaller institution. You you may not answer to as many layers as say somebody at Ohio State. Um, and the other is the growth of the sort of higher education adjacent industries where because it's so expensive say to start a program, it's so expensive to um, furnish a science, build a science building or, or properly outfit a, a lab, um, that these, these higher education adjacent companies will come in and help you with that, right? Or they'll, they'll do a, um, like a course sharing model where you don't have to hire the faculty, it doesn't reside on your campus, you can really pivot and produce new majors inside of a you know a semester. Sometimes, I I find all of that super felicitous and helpful at this moment. My anxiety is that as we continue to outsource our, the work that ordinarily happens on campus, I I don't want. I mean, I can see those tables sort of shifting if we're not careful. Um, yeah. I don't want to give up the mission like I said earlier, of, of creating a civil society and what a strong gen ed liberal arts base to even, you know, the trades can do. Yeah. So that's, for me, that's my anxiety. Sure. I get that. Well, what will opportunities look like for our higher ed institutions in the future? Oh, if I knew that, I would have my own podcast. That's true. And people <laughs> and people would pay to listen to that one. Yes. And absolutely. I would be famous. <laughs> um I think I think 
I think it's, I mean, of course it's changing, um, but it's been changing. If you, because I, my, all my, my, my degrees are in English, right? And um, English literature and, you know, various versions of that kind of a degree. I, I became interested in how, how long folks have been talking about the death of the liberal arts, because I worried as a professor that we were sort of bringing it on ourselves by constantly banging on about it. That are we, is this a self-fulfilling prophecy? Could we, could we not be the ones who are, are talking about the liberal arts dying? But, you know, we're anxious about it. So we've been doing this for a very long time. But I, the earliest mention that I could find, and I admit that I, I didn't do as, you know, the, the most thorough job of researching it, but the earliest mention I could find of the death of the liberal arts I, was dated like 1893. <laughs> yeah, it was like a letter to the editor or something. So the liberal arts have been dying for a really long time. So I feel like we could put, we can, we can park that argument and we can just continue to offer gen eds that feature the liberal arts and not, and not have the other conversation. Let's just do it. Yeah. But that's not what you asked me. You asked me about the future. Yeah. Um, so my, my goal is as a CAO is to create an academic affairs division that can balance all of those things. And I hope that that's, what's going to happen with, um, higher ed going forward, that that we become producers of well-informed, self-sufficient, like good um, civic-minded employ, you know, workers. Uh, I really worry about things like um, the Gates Foundation and those these behemoths that have really infiltrated higher education, the bigger schools, especially in a way that now seems just natural and organic. I really, I worry about um, us losing control and autonomy because mm -hmm. we really are the ones who know what we're doing. Yeah. Oh, that's a good point. I also think that uh, I think you're hitting it on the head. The future, when I've talked to some other uh, provosts in the past, it, it appears that more than one have, has said that, you know, we're going to have this future where everybody's dealing with all these skill sets. We got to have all these skill sets for work, but, you know, remember what the mission of a university is, is to educate people to be citizens of the, I mean, that's really just like what you talked about. And so how do you balance that? I think it's going to come back around. I think this is a short term, but it still needs to be taken care of forever. It's kind of neat to watch just like what you're doing. It's kind of neat to see a community college embedded inside a university to do both. And I think that's mm -hmm. where, I think that is the future. Those, those things are going to have to, work in harmony together down the road. And I would, I would recommend, and this is how I, I try to organize my life, that we just do it, that we talk to each other about it, but let's not look outside for affirmations of what we're doing. So if at the community college level, we, we still have a gen ed, right? If you want to graduate with an associate's degree in um, industrial maintenance, say, you still have to take gen eds. So we, can design the content of those classes. And I think that, you know, really understanding that we can control the content of our classes and continue to move, move those, those habits of mind into those class, those courses. So students, they're compelled to take the gen eds and we help them think like, you know, ethically. I also think there's, we have different audiences. So at a community college in Rio Grande, Ohio, we might have to introduce notions of, ethical thinking with different language. So it's not off-putting. 
So it's not threatening to them or to their families who are unfamiliar with certain kinds of terminology. Um, and I know some people might want to call that dumbing down, but I think that's knowing your audience. You're still right. talking about the same ideas. Let's just find a way to make them accessible. And I think accessibility and really being shrewd about your gen eds and not asking permission. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, what do you think has been learned about online education since the pandemic? And how do you see this platform evolving for both faculty and students? So I think one of the things that we learned is that you can't just take face-to-face -face material and just put it online, that there are two very different sets of pedagogies. Um, I know that when the pandemic happened and I was, I was at Hartwick at the time, um, we had faculty who had already been interested in the online space and had developed really interesting ways of interacting with students remotely and keeping them interested. But we had, of course, like everyone, we had faculty who had never taught online and found it really frustrating that what they had always done didn't seem to work. So if we were going to continue down this path, and there's no way we, we don't, I think that what, what I have learned is that faculty development um, and pedagogical innovation is really important. That just because I can do this in front of students, I don't know if I can do it online. Yeah. Um, so I really think that training is important. Uh, students, even at, at the school where I am, they once they get an online class, they're likely to take another one. Uh, so we think that our students, our population are better served face-to-face, -face. but if our population also is um, slightly older than traditional college students, they might have more than one job, they right. might have children, they might have families they have to take care of, serving them might involve sprinkling in remote education. The challenge also is that it's not universal because in the schools where I have taught, you cannot assume 100% of your students have Wi-Fi at home or even, or if they do, that they have enough that um, broadband or enough, whatever it's called, that they can look at videos or that they can download things. Um, so you, you don't want, you have to understand, like I said, your audience, you don't want in a school like mine to design a really hip and groovy class that everyone wants to take that excludes 20% of the students because they have to go sit in a McDonald's parking lot right. to watch the videos or the graphics or whatever you're doing. Right. Um, so I think it's training. Yeah. I absolutely That's... think students can succeed online. I don't think there's any question, but not, but that's a pedagogical question. Yeah. Well, what suggestions do you have to improve diversity, equity, and inclusion at colleges and universities? I was thinking about this question, and I, I think like so many people, I feel super self-conscious trying to talk about it. Um, as the successful, I. The programs that I've seen in the schools that I've spent time in have only achieved sort of middling success. Um, the kind of schools where I work tend to be 98% white. Um, some international students, um, but the diversity in the schools where I teach or work tends to be socioeconomic. 
So I can speak to that. But my concern is that we, when we speak to socioeconomic diversity and um, injustice, then we're, then I'm ignoring questions of ethnicity and race and, and, you know, families of origin and things like that. But when I look at my own current institution, I want to make sure that the students who knock on our door have access. So if that's the 27 year old single mother with two kids who has to work a second job, I, I want to, that's the, I want to include her. Right. And then, you know, if it's a, if it's a, a poor student from way far away from our campus who can only come to campus two days a week, but really wants an education, I want to include him. Right. So that's, that's how I'm, I'm reframing how I think about inclusion. Diversity is a much harder one. Yeah, yeah I agree. Okay. Um, here's a fun question. If you had any extra budget money right now with no strings attached, how would you spend it? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is I would send all of my chairs to um, like a, a chairs training sort of workshop, like a weekend thing. And I would send new chairs and coordinators to shadow other chairs and coordinators at other schools like ours. Um, schools like ours tend not to have a lot of faculty development funds or human development funds, right? Um, and we have to really be deliberate about bringing new ideas, fresh ideas into the campus because schools like ours with resource constrained means we, we are not a wash in staff, right? Everybody's doing four or five different jobs or that's what it feels like. So we don't spend a lot of time on professional development because that takes people off campus. But I think my chairs, coordinators, deans would really benefit and and like the woman I told you earlier in the conversation that I just we just promoted to dean, she would she would she's thirsty for that, and um, I think it's a really strong sign also or gesture toward those folks that you are investing in them. You know that they they bring quality. They have quality things to share outside of campus, and it's a re it's refreshing. You know I. I love going to conferences and I might not come away with a whole lot of insights, but something happened because I talked to peers who, who are new to me, who exist in different places, who say things I've never heard before. Yeah, so that that's one of the things I would do investing in your people. Um, and then if I had a lot of extra money, I would build a daycare. <laughs> there you go. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I bet, I bet you'll get extra points from your faculty hearing that on the podcast for sure. That's really great. <laughs> but a daycare would change things for us too. If we had a, yeah. like a daycare and then like a preschool yeah. maybe, yeah. I mean, it would help our employees a lot, yeah. but it would it would really open up opportunities. Yeah. But it sounds like it sounds like you're really hitting it out of the park as provost there. So no, thank you. That's very nice yeah. to you. I, I like the position very much yeah. and I'm absolutely thrilled with where I work. Well, Kelly, thanks so much for being on our show. I really enjoyed our conversation. Me too. Well, that wraps up today's episode. Thanks everyone for listening. Thanks for listening to today's episode and make sure to visit our website at academicdean.com for additional information. Also, if you enjoy our podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. 
Until next time.